Welcome everyone to today's roundtable on acing LP relationships. I am Andreas and I'll be your host for today's conversation. We are going to focus 100% on the intricate dynamics between LPs and VCs. And we're going to really dive into how VCs can manage and nurture the relationships effectively, as well as dive into the expectations and preferences of LPs. And of course, try and hack the tech stack of our speakers. So to structure this conversation, I've decided that we will try and talk through the investor journey. And we have split it into three main stages, onboarding, investing, and exiting. So that is going to be the structure for today. But before we get started, let's just get some brief introductions to our esteemed panelists. So everyone, a two-liner about yourselves and your role and how that relates to the topic of LP management. And Alex, I'll ask you to go first. Awesome. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, name's Alex, CFO and partner at Cherry Ventures. I do a variety of things, but uh, lots of the time or day in, day in, day out, I talk to our LPs and manage basically all relationships with existing LPs and prospective LPs. So happy to be here today. Yeah, thanks, Andreas. Thanks for having me. I'm Simon. I'm with Cavalry Ventures, an early stage fund out of Berlin. We invest initially in pre-seed and seed stages. I'm with the firm since six and a half years now, started in the investment team, then built up the platform team, and now responsible for investor relations and fundraising activities since almost two years now. And we have like almost 300 LPs uh, on our platform. So yeah, I hope I can add value to this discussion today. And, and thanks for having me again. Hi, everyone. Uh, Chloe Dagnall, principal at Isma Capital, uh, a VC fund of funds. So we are an LP in over 75 funds in Europe, clearly the ones that need to be managed. Uh, so happy to give everyone some tips today on how we like that to be. Beautiful. Thank you, Chloe. As you see, we're trying to put together a panel here with diverse perspectives. So an LP there in the form of Chloe. Sophie, tell us a bit about yourself and how you relate to the topic of LP management. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Sophie, based in Amsterdam, working at No Such Ventures, the Seeds and Series A VC investor across Europe. And we do operate as a VC, but have a, uh, an angel or LP syndicate model. So LPs can invest with us on a per deal basis and opt in in specific deals that they prefer. Uh, we now have close to 200 people that invested with us. So also some community management and process management there. And uh, therefore really interested to, uh, to have this conversation. We have two VC funds, one LP and one syndicate. Now Enrico, tell us about yourself and how you relate to this topic. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Uh, great and great to be, be here. Uh, Enrico, one of the founders of bunch, we are, we are building uh, the rails of, of private markets. As we say, we are trying to build one end-to-end -end platform where uh, GPs can manage uh, their LPs. I think that that totally makes sense to discuss today. Uh, and I'm in charge of product operations uh, and people at bunch, and very excited to uh, yeah share, but also learn a lot uh, from you guys uh, today. So with that out of the way, let's go right into discussing the LP investment journey and its key pain points. And as I said just before, we're starting with onboarding as the first of the three steps, onboarding, investing, and exiting. And Enrico, you have, as you just said, by, by building out bunch and thinking about the whole problem space, you've really dived into this, this, this problem area and how you might solve that. So I think it's natural for us to start with you. So give us the overview of the LP onboarding experience and the pain points that you've identified in that. There are probably a lot of, uh, lot of answers to this question. What we've, what we've seen and what we've tried to empower um, our users to do, and we don't have any LPs, but we now have roughly 2,000 investors on the platform, is actually smoothing out the process of onboarding. Um, and all of you know that for an LP, an investment into a fund is basically always starting from scratch. And that's something that I think all of them uh, don't uh, don't experience on on their normal lives. They can, yeah, do the next investment, copy their ID, uh, just copy a lot of information, and don't feel that they have to start from scratch again. That's that's one of the very very big point points. Everything moves into digital. So the <laughs> the second big big <laughs> learning from 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 our side was actually how much is still PDF paper driven. 
I know that, uh, or uh, some of us, Alex and Simon and me are uh, based in Germany, so uh, we are probably like uh, the the outliers and and the worst case uh, <laughs> to 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 uh, push this forward. But prime private markets overall, and and some of you may already have seen uh, subscription documents in the US. They're still also extremely lengthy and extremely PDF driven. We are trying to make this digital, especially for the LPs. And then lastly, I think our learning that came uh, in the in the last. Um, yeah, especially last six months, every LP is different. And what we are really focusing on at the moment is the long tail of LP. So I, I am very much looking forward to Chloe, your uh, exp- experience and, and your of it because your view of it, because I think you, you have a different expectation to a high net worth individual that, that, that does like two or three fund investments that really wants to streamline their process. And on the same side, Alex also, for example, wants to streamline the, the onboarding of this yeah, founder or ex-founder uh, and don't spend enough, uh, a lot of time on that. So I think our biggest learning here, there, every LP is different and you can treat uh, a high net worth individual investing into a fund not the same way as you can treat Chloe or an IF or a KFW. So you need to flex, you have still flexibility and you will always have LPs that want actually to do everything from scratch again because they have teams that they're paying a lot of money to do that from scratch again uh, and maybe negotiate some side letters uh, at the same time. So three, uh, three distinct uh, topics. One, um, um, digitization and, and moving away from PDFs um, for the LP experience to making it flexible enough to onboard uh, Chloe as well as uh, and high net worth individual at the same time. Lastly, not start from scratch. So making an investment uh, or investor and able to copy paste information that he's already provided in his last 10 uh, investments or five or three investments or two investments into, into private markets. Maybe because we went right into the deep, deep, deep end there, right? In terms of this is the nitty gritty operations of of, of onboarding NLP. And obviously everyone in our audience are going to be very familiar with this as well. But Alex, I'd maybe love to ask you to, to, to start us off from your perspective as a VC onboarding LPs. How do you kind of think about, about the journey when an LP comes in? How do you segment them? Do you know already, okay, this is a high net worth, so they have different expectations from an isomer? And then what are the pain points across those different categories that you work with? Good question. So uh, maybe to uh, start off simply by saying we know who every LP is even long before we actually raise or we kind of formally launch a fundraise. So it's quite anybody who we work with during the fundraise, we already know them for probably 12, 24 months before. Uh, and they have gotten a good feeling about us too. And that has certain implications about the onboarding too. Before Alex, we then jump into onboarding. Tell us about the rationale behind that, because that's obviously the fundraising part, which is somewhat before here, we're kind of saying, okay, you've got fundraising. We've done a ton on that on EOVC. Then we have LP management. Um, and that's why we, we kind of s- jump off from the point, assuming that, okay, the ticket is secured. Now what's happening? But but Alex, just because you're saying what you're saying here, could you maybe expand a bit on the, the reflection there or, or why it is that you already know all of this beforehand? Uh, yeah, because we also at the end of the day, we have a fundraising strategy. So and the strategy evolves around, you know, institutionalizing our LP base, which we have worked around for eight to 10 years now. Um, diversifying our LP base geographically by type of investors, all with one, I think, main goal is to work with LPs very, very long term. Like when we have conversations, uh, and that takes a few conversations and meetings, really trying to figure out what's the kind of long-term vision for the LP. Are they looking to invest into the next five cherry funds or is it just, you know, try and, and test the waters on one? Uh, and in the end of the day, as a, as a manager, as a, you know, obviously subject to us performing very well, um, there's huge benefit in keeping captive very long term. And also from an LP's perspective, you reap the benefits when you um, invest across vintages. You can 
invest through market cycles, etc. Right. So that means also we have a very good understanding of who we are working with when we launch the fundraise. Now that doesn't mean that we have KYC, you know, these institutions or people, etc. But we fairly we know fairly well what their strategy is. And they know ours too, by the way. It's a two-way street, right? So they get to know us quite well also before uh, they actually, you know, we're kind of in live fundraising and into the subscription process, etc. Then the second part, which you were about to embark on <laughs> in terms of onboarding, yeah. how do you... Look, uh, if you zoom out, it's what am I concerned with or we are concerned with is LP user experience, right? On the one hand, and on the other hand, it's um, that we adhere to any kind of internal rules we have set, but also regulatory frameworks in terms of who we work with, right? And in the end of the day, we work with other people's money. Uh, so it's it's a great responsibility, but it also is a responsibility towards, um, I think, the wider, wider markets you work in, so that it's actually money that is also legitimate, right? Um, so that all needs to f come in together when you're onboarding and working with LPs. And that can sometimes be tough, right? You want to close the fund very fast, and then you still have 50 LPs in onboarding, and you just need to go through the process. Now, what can help with that is you work with software solutions um, and, and you just try to make that onerous process more digital and more efficient and reusable, right? So it comes in, you know, I think that takes up a lot of the things that obviously Enrico mentioned. And there's a few players in the market have been trying this, but we, I think, in the last 24 months have really done a big step forward um, in making this experience better and more efficient. And it's obviously about time because the alternative investment space has yeah, uh, grown so much over the past decade. Maybe if I can quickly jump, jump in there, what we've we also seen um, is uh, just to add on that is transparency, right? A lot of LPs don't, they feel like they're super, super confident already, but they also want to know what the next step is. And, and they would even prefer actually to know, let's say, when the next step would happen, right? Um, and that's, that's just a dynamic that we have seen uh, playing out and, and sometimes increasing stress levels because obviously the fund is under pressure to close the fund or close the next vintage. And then the LP doesn't really know what the next step is. When, when, when is the closing? When is the capital call? So I think transparency is also something that we've seen and asked for both sides uh, on, top of, on top of the three that Alex just mentioned. That I think um, it's something that that would reduce a lot of the yeah stress or, or um, pressure around times of uh, times of fundraise. In both sides, I'm also a founder, so I, I know how this feels when, <laughs> when when raising, right? Simon, I'd love to call on you because you've got, as you said, more than 300 LPs. Uh, so what what Alex just said. Time is off the off the off the issue here, um, especially if you have three hundred LPs to manage um, and onboard. So tell me a bit about how do you make sure that this process is 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 streamlined for yourself and as painless as possible for the LPs. So first of all, I think you have to to hire a great team that is supporting me a lot. <laughs> so we have a in in house legal counsel, we have a finance team, we have a good tax advisory, and so on. Um, but no jokes aside, like next to the team, you, you need like clear processes and repetitive processes, I would say. So, for example, at Cavalry, we um, divide our um, LP base into like the long tail, which, which is um, then uh, actually collectively um, investing via a feeder fund. And then we have the um, bigger LPs, let's say people or institutional investors that invest more than a million they invest via a main fund, so we have a difference here, which is which is helpful in terms of the process. And then um, I think it's just helpful if you do it uh, or, like all all time the, the same way. Um, so we have a clear process. Um, what we like to do is to do an onboarding process with each new LP. Um, so we send out a survey survey during the onboarding, ask them about their expertise and um, their knowledge and the network in, in specific uh, industries and also ask for their interest 
For example, are these LPs interesting in co-investments? If so, in which type of co-investments, which industries, what is the typical ticket size? Do you want to engage as a sparing partner with the portfolio and so on? And then we actually implement all of this into our CRM system and we tag it. So actually all the people at Cavalry internally can search for these types of things because it's super relevant in, in, in the um, in, in the collaboration in the future with the existing LPs. Um, for example, now we have an SPV at our um, fund here and I have to check which of our LP is actually uh, interesting in investing into a company like this. And then I send all the information and the memo to just these LPs and not to everyone and so on. So I think it's super important to try to automate processes and use software as well. And um, that's super helpful especially when you want to scale and when you have to manage 300 IPs, right? Because it's not done manual. <laughs> it's not possible anymore, right? Yeah, and I think that there's a big learning there for everyone listening in, right? Clearly, there's the the basic stuff that you need, the KYC, AML, and all that stuff, which you're required to get. And then there's ensuring that you create a good setup for value at along the way or whatever you might call that the extra thing is that that LPs might invest in your fund for and 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 this is just as important to manage as a VC as as, as the other part almost um, Sophia co-investing could not be a more uh, bang on subject for you because everyone that invests with you chooses to co-invest basically could you tell us a bit about how you manage to run a syndicate of your size and make that a fluent process and, and how what Alex and Simon just set is different when you run a, a syndicate model. Yeah, interesting. And I think a lot of things are actually very alike. Um, the onboarding for us is a bit different as we normally, so RLPs are also mainly high net worth individuals and a few smaller family funds. So we, we tend to get in touch with people who might be interested to go invest in the future, right? And then they become part of our community. And then we already try to do something similar as, as Simon just mentioned to to kind of map their their backgrounds and their um, investor preferences, right? Because some people only invest in specific sectors or specific business models or whatever. Uh, so it's very important for us to to map that and capture that in the CRM system as well, so that we engage the right people for the right deal, um, and also maybe engage them already pre-term sheets to to hear their view as an expert, uh, which can be very useful. And yeah, kind of nurturing that community through events or sending gifts or um, hosting small dinners or whatever is very important for us to yeah to keep the relationship ongoing and that you're top of mind um, whenever a new opportunity arises. And then at the point that we have an opportunity coming in, then the pressure is a bit higher, right? Because then you need to onboard new investors, uh, get them through KYC and stuff. And um, there, my biggest learning is that simplicity is key. So it should be very uh, repetitive every time again so the set of documents should be the same people should um yeah get familiarized with how we do things so that there is no surprise involved and you see that there are a lot of small things that can already make a difference so um having e-signing in place for example or sending all documents at once instead of four doc different documents stuff like that is already improving your nps with them all the time um and very very much agree with what has been said about keeping them updated because sometimes you forget how deep you are into the process and, and that other people are waiting for you to, yeah, to send them the next action. So there's a lot of automation and standardization involved for us as well. Chloe, you're the LP here. Tell us, nah, I won't ask you to weigh on, don't be, don't, don't be the judge here. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but I would, I'd love to ask you from what you've heard here, what, what to you as an LP is the most important thing? And what are you seeing typically being difficult for managers to, 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 to get done in a timely manner or, or to prioritize sufficiently for a player like you? You know, one thing that strikes me, uh, so Simon made the point of, you know, going out, surveying your LPs, asking them what they're interested in. Um, LPs change their mind all the time with what they're interested in. Right. And uh, like we're guilty of it here. You know, you set out, you have a thesis, but obviously like as, as all investors, do your thesis changes over time and what you're interested in might change over time so I think that even though it's great to like have these automations in place that really help you be more efficient and get things to people's inboxes quicker that is definitely important 
I would definitely say that, you know, having those regular in-person or, you know, phone call, email touch points with individuals is also great because it just allows you to stay on top. Of course, when you have like 250, 300 LPs, like Simon's talking about, or maybe you have a whole syndicate, it's, you know, you need that automation in place. But definitely for some of your larger, more strategic LPs, then I would recommend, you know, having regular catch up so you can really understand, well, what are they leaning into at the moment? What are their priorities? And, and maybe where can, can you help them? But what I would say from, from our standpoint is, you know, once we're at this investing point and once you're at that point in the journey, you know, the most important thing for your LPs, most of them will, will be the returns that you can create. So, you know, also being an LP and getting out the way and allowing you guys to do your thing and hunt for the best deals without, you know, spending too much time distracting you, asking for updates, asking for data, asking for all these ancillary and additional things. It's really, really important that as an LP, you learn when to step in and, and when you think that your value add is important versus actually, you know, when you're creating more work. And I think that's where a lot of these automations can also really help, right? Because you can offload managers' time. I always, you know, talk to our VCs that we invest with about being able to leverage as much of their time towards their investment and their investment portfolio and away from these kind of admin-based tasks. And certainly software and automations is kind of one way to, to do that. Alex, we just heard from Chloe, who's a very institutional investor, how they think about things and what they're kind of being mindful of. You said you're very much working on institutionalizing your LP base. I'd love to understand how do you what do you see as the steps that for you in in terms of managing the relationship here during the onboarding process with a very large institutional investor what is it that's absolutely key for you what are you seeing that okay if we want to play this game if it's the big uh, us endowments then we need to really nail x y and c the real big lps pension funds sovereign wealth funds endowments you know they on the one hand they know that you're not blackstone or blackrock <laughs> that kind of institution but at the same time they have i think certain expectation when it comes to what you need to have in place as in to safeguard the money to apply certain rules governance procedures all of that that's not so easy to be done when you're a small firm <laughs> And, and I think that's the crucial part. It comes into play into the onboarding because for them, before even investing, if they have made that de decision commercially, there will be some things around governance, et cetera, that are kind of minimum requirements that you need to have. You would be, I think that needs to be prepared well in advance of the onboarding and um, is then reviewed during kind of the due diligence after the commercial decision, right? And that goes from having policies around lots of things, it, how you work internally with your employees, how you, what security, cybersecurity policies you have in place, um, all these kinds of things that maybe are not so visible to the outside. And sometimes I would say individual LPs don't even get to see, but certainly the big ones do. And uh, yeah, I think that's definitely something to keep in mind if you want to have big institutions invest with you. Yeah. When did you start the process of being, you know, getting yourself to a point where you can actually take these people in? Uh, was that a, a thought from fund one? Did were you born with that, or did that come as you as you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, we always had institutional LPs and entrepreneurial LPs. What's what we call them? It's a bit, bit of similar concept. We actually have both. Yeah? So it's part, you know, if you look at our investment firm here, everybody in the investment team has operator entrepreneur experience. Um, and uh, the first money we ever raised at Cherry was from entrepreneurs. Right. So the first 30 million. And then we added institutional investors. Right. So we have both. And I would say, you know, with the institutions that we started with, they helped us also get there. It, it's obviously not just you just switch the, you just switch around and then you do a completely different institution. So to some extent, yeah, obviously we have been doing that since the get go. But if I compare us now having raised close to a billion or a billion 
in um, commitments to versus where we started it on an institutional basis 2016, of course, it's much more. Yeah? And it's been a journey. It's not just, you know, it's been, I think, work around the journey. And it's also, I would say, importantly, in that time frame, the market has also changed, right? There is more regulation. And just, just that simply also increases, I think, the thresholds. And also, importantly, if you think about these big institutions, think of a pension fund. We have one very large Canadian pension fund. Their regulations to safeguard the money of their uh, clients obviously has also increased. So, and, you know, I think these institutions have over the past 10, 20 years increased their allocation into, into the private investment world. So naturally, this also had to evolve, yeah. I think it's fair to say also, you know, just six months ago or so, uh, maybe a bit less, we had, you know, the, the Securities and Exchanges Commission coming out with new rules for, for, for the U.S., which very much, you know, it comes, comes to Europe by, by, by the, uh, the big U.S. LPs. And I see both Alex and Simon smiling here because I'm sure you've been impacted by it or at least are looking, looking to be. I can just tell you we manage all of our U.S. money, or almost everything, and one-third of our funds is usually from the U.S. by a U.S. feeder that we manage from here. So we even have a degree of regulation that we have in the U.S. Enrico, I'd love to ask you, because what we've just heard here is there's a very big difference between the large investors and the small investors. And you also said it in the beginning that Bunch is very much made for capturing the long tail of investors, meaning the small ticket investors. I'd love to ask you a bit about how do you how do you make sure that you have a platform that caters to both sides, or how do you cut the cake there, so to say? Because that's definitely what, what we have experienced at EBC when we do our LP syndicates. It's definitely a difference between what's expected for an LP syndicate to work and to have good paperwork and good process versus versus an angel investment. Hundred uh, percent. I think I think we're trying to give the GP the flexibility to decide on an LP basis uh, or LP group basis, while trying to automate as much as possible in the area of the LPs where you can automate. So, yes, automate the long tail and give the flexibility for the big ones. Um, and what we are actually seeing there is really more about, let's say, the process that comes after the investing. I don't know if I overstep my, my boundaries of the process of the call now, but as, as Alex already mentioned, right, there are very big compliance efforts uh, or requests from these last, large institutions on special reporting, special policies, uh, cybersecurity, and, and all of these, yeah, LP, uh, governance topics that come after, we try to let you know, right? We are we are not only an onboarding tool. We are trying to create workflows uh, on a GP per GP basis or investor per investor basis. And if this large Canadian um, LP wants a specific report on a quarterly basis, and for that, three, four different KPIs have been, uh, or metrics have to have to be calculated or have to be requested from from different uh, um, from different points, different portfolio companies, whatever. These are the workflows that you can build uh, on our platform, and that we try to help you be compliant to, let's say, your side letters uh, or also your LPA, which is let's say the first level um, from day one uh, or from the first day of the closing. So, uh, if I look at this, I mean. And there is a lot still to do, um, and and at one point there might even be APIs to the EIF or APIs to the Canadian Endowment Fund uh, to to onboard uh, completely technical. And I think this will move in this direction. But but now it's really enabling the flexibility for the big ones and making sure that you run a compliant system from day one, which is which is not think about side letter uh, once the first reporting is there, but think about the side letter before you close the fund or don't even think about the side letter because you have a technology thinking about the side letter for you. And I think that the complexity that Enrico just uh, unveiled a bit of here 
goes to show why you want to be uh, <laughs> be in bed with the right partners when you're when you're setting up your fund. So very cool, Enrico, for you to share a bit of light on that. Now I'd love to get us into the second part, second act of this, which is investing, and that is, of course, you know, the phase where LPs actually engage with their investments and monitor their progression. And I was thinking, Chloe, maybe we should start with you as the LP here. And tell us a bit about how you work together with your your VCs to really make sure that you're on top of what's going on and and also share with us what your main concerns and priorities are uh, uh, for you when you've committed your capital during the investment phase. Maybe I I pick up on one thing that you said there, Andreas, which was like keeping on top of what's going on. And I think that's a really important part for LPs, right? We're not in the thick of it day to day. We don't see everything that our GPs see. And quite often when you are so in the thick of it, you kind of lose track of, of what's most important. And the way that I always think about it is that your LPs should never be badly surprised. I think no one minds a great surprise, right? That's always that's always a solid. Uh, if a company's doing really well, there's a big up round, a big exit, something like that, that, that that happens really fast. I think that's always really exciting. But ultimately, if something is going wrong, often these things happen a little bit slower and there's often a chain of events that that lead up to, to maybe a write-off or, or a down round or, or something like that. And ultimately, keeping your LPs in the flow with that kind of information is really, really important. And so kind of no bad surprises is one way that you can look at it. Like, obviously, if you've got a long tail like you, Simon, of 250 LPs, you can't spend your whole life reading around them all and, and telling them what's going on. So things like quarterly update calls are a great way to keep people in the loop. But, you know, if you have a few more major LPs, maybe your LPAC, use that as a way to to make sure that they are up to date and in the loop with with everything that's going on. I think, you know, obviously LP's priority number one is returns. That is always going to be the case. Uh, you know, you'll focus on it time and time again. But giving everyone a holistic view of of what that looks like, right? Especially early on in your fund, it, how how the fund is performing is not rep, really representative of, of where it may end up. So giving some kind of color to what those numbers mean in your reports through a quarterly call, through things like that is is, is really important. I think also keeping um, keeping your LPs up to date with any other changes that are going on, right? Are you launching new strategies? Is there a change in the partnership? Is there just a, a change in the team more generally? I it's great if your LPs can find that out before the rest of the market, essentially. So even just something like a quick email communication before you do a post on LinkedIn about some big news, it's a really nice way to say, hey, you guys matter a little bit more than, than everyone else. And so you get some some time with this information to ask any questions before, before others do. So I think that's a really, really important part of LP management is actually just making sure that, you know, as a partner in the fund, as a limited partner in the fund, you have some sort of advantageous seat as to, to what is going on. Yeah, absolutely. Let me pick up on the no surprises there and having 300 investors. Simon. Yeah, perfect. I, I actually wanted to, to add on this one because, Chloe, what you said is absolutely right. So, for example, at Cavalry, we do an LP segmentation. So we segment our LPs into groups. For example, you know, individual investor, mid-market investor, and then the enterprise investors, the institutional investors, the big investors. And they get different uh, level of transparency and information from us. We have like a quarterly newsletter that we send out to every LP. There we have in, like more update than the quarterly report. Um, we have some qualitative update, you know, in the team or biggest, you know, with new customers of relevant portfolio companies and so on. So some updates. But then we also do an IR quarterly call with all the mid-market and the bigger LPs where we actually give a little bit our opinion on, on asset level, um, how, how good are they actually capitalized, what is the runway and so on. Do we have to do a, a down round? Do we have to make changes in the valuations or not? How, how um, safe are we with the investment and the, and the returns? So a little bit more of context and background information. We also like to add actually our um, opinion on the on the market. So sometimes we have a strong opinion on macro environment and so on. 
And sometimes there's just um, some emergency emergency communication to all LPs. For example, we had last year this Silicon Valley Bank situation where it's super important that you are transparent, um, that you are quick and that you are communicating with your uh, LPs because they want to understand what is the exposure in our portfolio and so on. Uh, and that's super important. Um, so that's why we actually have these processes in place and also try to segment it because otherwise it's not uh, manageable with the 300 LPs, right? But what we also do, of course, um, we don't not only do this onboarding and then ask <laughs> the things in the survey, we are also close to our LPs and like to communicate with them and work closely with them. Um, so, for example, what we do a lot is we reach out to LPs after we did this onboarding and we know where do they actually have experiences and where do they have a good network when we see something in our current deal flow. We like to reach out to the LPs um, and then try to engage them in our like deal processes. Um, so, for example, as an experience partner in general, but maybe also as a potential customer, we ask for feedback on, on this kind of product. Is there, is there really a need in the market? And so on. So we really try to be close to our LPs and build up a real like operational uh, working relationship because in this way you get higher engagement and they also have a level like more natural level of transparency, which gives a lot of trust. And trust in the end is the most important uh, factor, I would say, when you do investment decision next to returns and everything, of course. But trust is very important. And if you do this and you really work with them, then the, the probability is higher that they will keep invest in, in your future fund generations. And that's what we try to do and try to be really close and engaged with our LPs. And there are lots of interesting set things there that were said. And, you know, we, of course, we've developed our, I would say, investor relations apparatus over some time and um, one thing that's definitely true I can say better make sure your LPs know also the bad news before they are in the news you know you want to stay on top of things and that's sometimes it's not so easy right I mean you'll have you have events in the portfolio that are not so much in the public but if you have invested in a B2C company that, you know, all, all your LPs are using privately or whatsoever, it will be in the news and they will know about it. And then you need to know what's in the news is not necessarily even true. Um, and, you know, it's like it's made for the public. It's not even has a sufficient level of detail. So I think that's definitely key <laughs> for anybody who starts to do this and very, very important. And then other than that, I think what's interesting is also if you look at the stage of the fund and the lifetime, you start out with a fund. It's obviously very different what you can report to LPs than versus a fund that's in year eight. Yeah, But that's also how we treat it, right? So very early in the fund lifetime, we talk to LPs about portfolio construction. Are we on track to, with regards to portfolio construction, what we actually promised? Yeah, so investments per year, the themes that we are looking at, why are investing in these themes, what are, what's so interesting about them. And that doesn't mean that you have to, I mean, in the end, to be factual LPs in our funds, they're investing into a blind pool, but obviously we have laid out a strategy, et cetera. And you can be opportunistic also, and, and we ha you have to be as a VC. If you aren't over 10 years, then I think I'm not sure you can generate alpha sustainably, but um, you need to, like, I think, provide background why certain themes are now interesting. Maybe they weren't interest. They were uh, weren't interesting in a low interest rate environment. How does that change, etc.? So, portfolio construction themes that we think about. Um, how do we think the year shapes up? That's, I think, important in the early days of the fund lifetime. And yes, it's nice to communicate follow-ons because it's early validation. You know that there are up rounds in the portfolio. But of course, it, I think Chloe said, in smart LPs, they know that it takes years for a fund to settle in the kind of in the quarter they're in. You know, I think most LPs think this is six to seven years. Um, so what, even in the second part of the fund lifetime. Now think of a fund and, you know, as opposed to that, think of a fund that's in year eight. Portfolio is ideally quite segmented. You know who the drivers are. You have some DPI. And I think then you can do 
you can provide a lot of value add if you have a pretty good idea what this means in the portfolio as in where do you think what an exit timeline is we never promise exits because in the end you know <laughs> we can't there's many things that need to happen for an exit but we can provide visibility on where do we think a fair valuation is and where does this might end up and do a lot of work around that you know so that's very different work than we do in the early days of a fund you just made me think of something we have to come back to which is of course fair valuation and how you communicate that throughout the fund's lifetime that said though i will just ask sophie to come in here before we go there to a, to a big subject that will overshadow for a while i think Sophie, tell us a bit about, because you run that syndicate model as we spoke about, how do you facilitate that your investors are best possibly, how should I put that, best possibly acquainted with what's coming in and what's happening across the portfolio? How do you think about that as a syndicate? Do you think that everyone should know what's happening across the portfolio or do you only report on a company by company uh, basis? And all the things. And after that, Enrico, I'll go to you and ask you about the the whole tech up tech setup for both a fund to allow for, for, for all this type of reporting and communication during the investing phase. And and and, and then contrarily on the on the same thing for, for syndicates. Sophie, you go first. I think it's very similar actually to, to what was shared before. So we, we do very detailed reporting on a company level, both financially and uh, qualitatively to talk about management, market trends, uh, et cetera. We do report on a company per company level. So if you invested in five companies with us, you will receive five detailed quarterly reports. And of course, we are open in, in LP conversations about how the whole portfolio is doing as a whole, right? But in the end, a lot of people are not that interested in that because if they chose to invest with us in four deals, they don't really yeah, are concerned with the other five or six or um, how much other deals we have been doing. So it's very individually focused and we should also approach it from that angle because we are not structured as a fund. So it's a bit of a less, it's that diversification play, right? So we should keep spending attention on companies that might not be in the top 10% highest performers, um, make sure that they also can still realize a decent return or at least, yeah, have, have a decent trajectory ahead of them. So I think that makes it a bit different, uh, but in terms of reporting requirements, I think it's very similar. So there is a. I like what what Simon was saying about the, the SME mid market and enterprise customer kind of thinking because that's also true for us. Um, you see that a lot of people are just reading an XXM of a report and that's fine for them. And some people just want to know all the details, so they want to know every number and what's behind that. And we have to find a balance in in reporting to to yeah to have an approach that works for everyone. Um, but I, I normally really like it to uh, to get their feedback and get their expertise. Also, what the, what the others were saying, if we're working on like an M and A deal, um, it's very nice to spar with some experienced M and A, yeah, investors or deal makers or entrepreneurs who have been there just to get their take. So in in general, it's it's also a nice interaction moment again to get their view on things. And I uh, I really like to to overshare in that sense because I very much agree with what Chloe was saying. You just want to make sure that everyone's up to date and it always helps to get our perspective. Sophie, you said something there, which I found a bit interesting because you said, you said we share, of course, on a deal by deal basis, uh, because they, if you're investing company X, you don't care about Y and C necessarily, but at the same time, both as a syndicate lead and also as a, as, as, as a VC, you are interested in sharing firm developments and you're interested in also kind of Yes, you committed to this fund, but, you know, I'd like to tell you that my fund one and two are already in the green. <laughs> um, so so how do you think about that, both from your perspective and, and also Chloe, Alex and Simon? How do you think about the strategic communication through this period? Because it's one thing that you're reporting what's happening on the on the fund level because you need to. But then there's also the marketing speech towards your LPs in this period. Yeah, no, I, I very much agree. And it's, it's it's also a natural process, right? So some people only started investing with us like in the past year and they haven't been part of previous deals. So it's always good to share with them when we made what decision there and how those companies are progressing. Also for them to get a feel for the opportunities that are still coming up. 
So we, we do, of course, look at it and also calculate for ourselves um, what the portfolio performance is as if it was a fund, uh, because I think it's still a, a strong tracker to see how we do. But in the end, that's also, by the way, how we, how we sometimes can report to LP so we can show their performance as if it is a fund with, I don't know, five investments or 10 investments or how many they've done. But you see that because they specifically choose to be involved with specific deals, they also like to to get that deal by deal, um, yeah, yeah, attention there and reporting because it, it's kind yeah, of their yeah, their yeah their driver. Yeah, obviously there's the two parts to it, and yeah, Alex, yeah. Simon, Chloe, any reflections on the marketing side of communication to LPs during 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 the investing period? How do you do that strategically? Optimize it for uh, for for positioning towards your LPs. Look, I think a lot of the things there. You know, I agree with a lot of things. Of course, you can be strategic to to some extent, but but then also, you know, it's we're pretty clear. For example, when you start investing, you know, the fund is launched. We already know when we want to raise the next fund. Now, always subject to market developments, but it's more like tracking towards that rather than kind of trying to be opportunistic. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about next fundraising timeline. You know, of course, there's a few things that you could potentially do to strategize. You know, you know, I think you want to show a nice performance before you actually go out. But at the end of the day, it's little marks on a quarterly by quarterly basis. What was very strategic going back to the market downturn started at the end of 2022. If I'd say what was the most strategic thing that we did, we proactively adjusted our valuations without waiting for any corrections. So we did that upfront. Yeah, and I think you, you also wanted to talk about fair values. We were in a, for many years in a market where you could just lose use the last price because there was always a new price, <laughs> you know, and and I think sometimes then you you have to come up with a new price because the one's old. But then we were in a scenario where you could anticipate that the new price is not going to be the old price. <laughs> so, and that's tricky, right? So how do you stretch? How do you th also when you think strategic? Because I would say that's strategic. You can wait. For prices to happen and you're like look that's the price that was paid now i'm marking it down or up uh and and then i think many people had to mark down then but that's also a lot of piecemeal kind of a piecemeal approach right then you may end up marking down and marking down and we said look we want to find a way uh, where our portfolio now shows the most adequate value that most adequately um reflects the current market environment now that's hard to do yeah but you can get there or you can you can in an iterative approach manage that and i think that was strategic if i come back to that question that was the most strategic thing we've done in the last three four years and i think maybe to jump in on that it's strategically building trust there with your lps right which goes back to that point with what we were saying earlier you know trust is the most important thing here i don't think especially existing LPs really do not want to feel like they're being sold to when it comes to the next fund, right? What, the best way to get your existing LPs to re-up is to have this trusting relationship whereby they feel that they know the truthful vision of activity of what is going on inside your portfolio. And so if you're trying to be too strategic and trying to sell too much to your LP base, I, I don't think that's going to end up well for anyone so I think you know taking that proactive approach and you know giving that honest overview of what is going on is is ultimately the thing that is going to lead to better trust stronger partnerships and therefore most likely want make your LPs want to to re-up with you maybe to add on this because uh, we, we did the same as Alex just described and it's super tough because in private markets and especially in early stage venture investing you don't have actually like um, I would say standard market valuation methods. So it's really interesting what people actually did. So I reached out to a lot of our LPs, like the bigger ones that are invested in several GPs, you know, that are maybe invested in the same assets. Uh, so our co-investors and asked them, 
what is the valuation in your books and in their books, actually, you know. And we also reached out, of course, directly to our co-investors because there is not a, like a real method, method how to do it. Some people are then actually adjust the valuation by the company in 25% steps. Some others really like to or try to calculate something. And it's really interesting. And you, find, you have to find your own way. But what is very important, as Chloe and Alex mentioned, is that you communicating with your LPs and that you let them know. And also what is important now, after this happened in the down market or when the market turned, we now have a new process in place where we sit down with all the managing partners uh, and myself together in a room uh, once a quarter. And we go through the portfolio, all of the funds, asset by asset, and ask ourselves, do we have to adjust the valuation or not? And then we, we discuss this because I think it's really important to have a process in, in place and not just always keep the, the last money valuation in, in the report, as Alex mentioned, right? And one other strategic thing, of course, would be something like when you do a new fundraising, maybe you don't have so much DPI yet or something like this, uh, like different instruments like secondaries, partial exits, and so on. Maybe you want to show more DPI to make it easier to raise your future funds and stuff like this. But I think this is really a tough uh, decision, and, and I, I wouldn't do that because you have different LPs in your different funds, right? And I think you always should uh, increase the, the, the interest or like align the interest of all the LPs, and you shouldn't sell any assets where you have a lot of upside potential and stuff like this. But this is, of course, uh, another instrument to think strategically about fundraising and expectation management that maybe make your life easier. But I think you should always think this decision through and it's, it's not that easy to actually do. And there's a lot of discussion that we also have internally when to sell and, and stuff like this. So when you're in like year eight or so in your, in your fund life cycle, it's not about the follow-on rounds and new investments anymore, as Alex said, but it's more about when you sell, actually, and when you distribute the money to the LPs. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get much more to distribution here in a second. Enrico, I'd love to ask you, because we had just a conversation now, but we also had a conversation a couple of weeks back on UBC where we did a did a, did a panel on, on portfolio management or portfolio management and, and data-driven decision-making and so on. And there, one of the big topics that ended up coming up was, was exactly how do you measure performance of a fund before you start having real markups and so on, because that's typically the situation that you raise fund two and three on the back of. So I'd love to ask you, Enrico, how do you, with Bunch, make sure that your investors can in the easiest possible way send how should you put that give good guidance on where the portfolio stands and the fund stands other than just the uh the the very um how should you say it, uh, uh boring <laughs> boring statistics uh it was super super good question and super good discussion i think Simply, like first, uh, simple answer, right? The you guys uh, looking, looking a bit uh, at everybody else. They're they're there for for good reasons. So um, at the moment, we are not giving anyone advice how to value a company. But what we are trying to do is actually giving them the perfect data set to take decisions on. What we actually have seen, uh, and I'm also the founder, and I'm also reporting. So. We've seen that obviously founders sometimes um, are good in reporting and diligent reporting and some founders that aren't. That's the first level of flexibility that, yeah, we've seen now more and more come up. And the second way that, that we've seen it all, and that's probably more relevant for Chloe, is, is that for funder funds or investors into funds, uh, they're extracting information out of the reports from the underlying funds. And that's something that we are currently working on very, very holistically, where we actually extract this information as data-driven as possible. So uh, you always get PDFs, but they're very similar. We have a good standard of, of Ill Power Invest Europe reporting that most fund reports on and therefore give you more data-driven yeah, database to work and take decisions on rather than look through PDF reportings. And then 
it sounds super, super, super trivial, but but also for those um, investors and and some of the LPs, it's it's really what we call global cap tables, because some investors don't actually know what the underlying assets, what their ownership in the underlying asset is, because obviously if you want to invest into three, four, five, ten, fifteen GPs, they sometimes tend to invest into the same assets, and sometimes they also report different valuations a bit to 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 uh, Simon's point. So I think two years ago when we started the company, we were like, okay, every single startup that we have on the platform or that is invested through our platform should be one startup and has one valuation, has one reporting. Uh, and, and maybe at one point, uh, this is actually also the founder directly being accessed. But we learned quite quickly that this valuation, yeah, level between funds is super super huge um and some funds take this decision very early and some funds follow on i think in the end uh, most funds took the decision to to change a couple of the valuations but um in the end to summarize we are a data provider uh, and we are currently extracting data mostly out of out of reports for funder funds and then uh, investors into funds and then secondly we are currently thinking about how can you make this portfolio reporting a more holistic, more standardized approach, because in the end, that's the only thing that we can do, right? We can only provide Alex or Simon or Chloe or Sophie with the information. We are not, uh, that's why we're in private markets. We are not the ones taking the, giving the feedback and uh, doing the, the price adjustment um, at the moment. Um, even though that I found it super interesting that Chloe said, okay, we do quarterly earnings calls. So I, uh, one's been in public markets and, and things that are so similar uh, are super, super interesting because obviously the, the liquidity, the tradability is, is something that that, uh, that shows potential but also risks through private markets. But to summarize, we provide the data. We are uh, already quite, quite powerful when it comes to the data that we know best, which is actually portfolio reporting or fund reporting. And we are getting better to understand what is operational reporting what is what are operational kpis and what is a maybe even a market standard on certain sectors uh but that's that's something that we are that we are currently learning that we're getting better at in the end the decision is with the gp and now to the final segment of our uh round table today and it's going to be a short one and it's very very uh um I would say I was about to say fitting because <laughs> because what I had written in my script here was that it's an often overlooked but crucial part of the LP investment journey, and here we are making it an overlooked uh, part of the journey by only dedicating a couple of minutes to it. But Chloe, I'd love to ask you to go first here and tell us what you see as the best practice as an LP. Yeah, I think best practice as an LP um, really differs upon what the exit scenario is. Right, so you have a few different things that can. Happen happen either a portfolio company exits kind of early in in the journey it's a trade sale as an lp you don't really have much influence on on what happens there if there is an ipo maybe there is more influence as an lp because sometimes your gps will ask you okay well when do you want to sell when when do you want us to sell the shares and that can vary from LP base to LP base, right? Maybe you have a super small LP base to all want to hold. In that case, do that. I think it's, again, this communication point, right? Really understanding what are your LP's positions and, and what works for them. Sometimes you can distribute the shares in species and, you know, that, that way you can do different things but for different LP's. But really, it's this asking your LP's what they want, which can be a really important part of that journey, Secondly, you know, you can get to the end of your fund and maybe there hasn't been much liquidity. And as Simon mentioned, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to sell some things in secondaries or maybe there's an opportunity to do a continuation fund. Again, I would just say talk to your LPs about it. Like they're there, they're around the table, they are limited partners. They will have an opinion on it. Discuss the possibilities, the outcomes, the eventualities. Make sure everyone understands and is on the same page. And I think you know that's a really, really important standing starting point. Is just really you know having those conversations with your partners to 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 get a view on on where your LPs stand and what's important for them. Sometimes it will be really important for people to access liquidity, and so you know they'd rather sell quickly and at a lower price. 
maybe your fund already has great DPI, in which case, you know, they're willing to ride it for a little bit longer to, to get that upside. Maybe one point uh, is that you can also involve your LPs when it comes about exit in your portfolio. For example, if you have corporates or like bigger family businesses as LPs in your, in your LP base, they can actually also be the buyers of your portfolio companies. Sometimes you even have a lot of potential inside your portfolio. If you have like a late stage or more mature former portfolio companies uh, that you already exited or that went public or so, they can be buyers uh, with newer portfolio companies, stuff like this. So I would always try to, to help the portfolio companies when it comes to exits and uh, try to leverage your LP base, base as well. I know it sounds repetitive, but the comms is important. We had one larger M&A trade at the end of 2020. We did keep LPs updated in our quarterly calls, but only to a certain extent that we're actually able to, right? So, uh, and I think we, it's, it's a, 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 around managing expectations. If I had said back then early on, yeah, I'll think it, it sells for $1 billion dollars. Every LP goes crazy and they're like, oh, great. Let me tell my clients, fund of funds and stuff, money's coming, right? <laughs> and then, but there's so many things that need to happen, right? There was an antitrust uh, case that first needed to be solved that takes a few months. So we just try to manage expectations also until it's really done. Now with an IPO, again, it's very different also, right? So, and we, we also had that and I was asked, You know, I think they weren't even in pre-marketing. And in my prior career, I'd done a lot of IPOs. So I also know a lot of things that can happen in an IPO. It's just amazing that you get asked a lot of questions. So, okay, so when is it happening? I heard the pricing is in four weeks. So do we get the money in five weeks? That's so far away from the reality. I mean, the sophisticated LPs know, but um, maybe some are newer to the business or they just... You know, if this happens, you know, late in a fund lifetime, which IPOs usually happen, it just takes some time. It's not a phenomenon that you see all the time. And we just try to manage expectations because, and if you see it in a down market, um, there's so many things, even if the IPO is priced, let's say it's done, you know, roadshow worked well, it's priced, you're still in a lockup. Yeah, it'll be six months in a lockup at a minimum. We have seen shares, not we luckily in the portfolio, but others also uh, have seen shares trade down 95% in the lockup period. So if you had told LPs five for five years how great this is and it will return the fund multiple times and then you actually lose the value in 95% of it in the lockup period, it's tough. <laughs> so we kind of, whenever we mention something, you know, for example, price range was set. They went out to the roadshow. We let LPs know that they can read it online, but you know, they also got it from us. Uh, pricing was done. What happens next? You know, okay, lockup period is done. How do we, and then it's more around how do we think about the company in general? What's the sell down strategy? Like, do we want to sell everything in, in a bulk in a block trade or? Uh, do we want to do, there's lots of things you can do. You, do we want to sell down our stake in a dribble down over three months? Or, you know, what's our plan? Are we long-term holders? Because we, we've been with the business since day one. We know, you know, we know the founders, we know the business. Or is it actually, we're quite far away from the business. So we want to sell short to medium term because we're not, in the end, we're not stock traders, right? People invest with us because we're, VCs and not stock traders. I think that also got a bit diluted during the boom years with some of the US funds. And at the end of the day, it's around that. Why do we want to sell within the next three months? What's our strategy? Is it we wait for the next? Uh, we basically, when we did that sale, we basically said, here's our macro calendar. Those are the events that could potentially impact the stock. We've spoken to a few people. This is the next quarterly reporting date. This is our sell window. Uh, we don't announce it, but that was my answer when they asked. And then we just pulled the trigger. Um, yeah, we did it uh, before some very unfortunate events happened in early 2022, which was in the, thing, in the end the right thing to do. But I think it's more around that. How do you think about the process and how do you, what's your thinking around it? And not just saying, oh, you know, seems like a good day for the stock. Let's sell. 
maybe segueing a bit on this, I think overall what we've also seen is education, right? Uh, Transparency, I mentioned earlier, and we discussed this, but education on on this element across the board helps tremendously. Uh, We all we all wanna wanna make private markets grow as they have been growing or even more. Uh, and, and it needs education for more people to participate or more people to understand what an IPO process and that there is a, a bit of uncertainty, even though that it might be an IPO. I mean, you also, we all, uh, we also, also Figma and Adobe. I think that's also something that, that probably everybody was already spending the money. Uh, on on Figma, which is an amazing company, I think everybody works works probably even with it. Um, and then in the end, um, they cannot do the deal. Um, and uh, they probably, I think, they still had a billion of just a cover up fee if it, the deal didn't happen. So I think. <laughs> but overall, what I want to say is, uh, education is 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 key. And a lot of things can go wrong. And if you are hyped up and, and already spent your money before the DPI actually has been returned, then, then you might run into uh, two issues. Rico, I think you segued us perfectly into the ending where I can say, let's close on the line of a lot can go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to today's roundtable on Acing LP Management. I hope you enjoyed it. Simon, Sophie, Chloe, Alex, and Rico, thank you so much for joining us here today. I hope you had some fun as well. Thank you. We did. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values. Of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New, new beginnings. Let's start acting. Acting, acting.